to Beyond Bechtel with me, Contrera. When you hear the words, it is a truth universally acknowledged, can you immediately finish the sentence? If you answered yes, then you are a huge fan of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. This episode delves deep into the BBC's 1995 TV adaptation penned by writer Andrew Davis. For the unfamiliar, the characters sum up most of the plot in this handy scene from the first episode. is taken by a young man of large fortune from the north of England. A single man of large fortune, my dear. He came down on Monday in a chaise and four to see the place. His name is Bingley, and he will be in possession by Michaelmas, and he has 5,000 a year. What a fine thing for our girls. How so? Um, How can it affect them? Oh, Mr. Bennett, how can you be so tiresome? You must know that I'm thinking of his marrying one of them. Or a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. <laughs> yes, he must indeed. And who better than one of our five girls? <laughs> me. Yeah. What a fine joke if you were to choose me. Or me. <laughs> With a new adaptation for TV coming to our screens imminently, Nick and I decided to review this classic six-parter. We discussed whether our feelings towards this version have changed in 20 years and why viewers are still obsessed with the rules of upper-class English society from the 1800s. And are these rules still in force today? Finally, I make a case for Mrs. Bennett as misunderstood literary heroine. I'm not sure Nick was convinced, but can I convince you? If so, please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. Capital, capital, I say. Let's get on with it. So when do you think the last time you watched Pride and Prejudice was? Was it when it first came out? Uh, Prior to, I was watching it recently. Yes. Um... Oh, I did watch it when it first came out, for sure. Um, I think I've seen it that last time, or I'm going to say about 2008, nine sort of time. So ten years ago. Yeah. So you've watched it. This is probably your third watch. Yeah. And it's probably my fourth or fifth, because I have watched this lots and lots of times. I definitely watched it when it came out um, week by week when it was serialised on the BBC and then I think I watched it again because I had a box set uh, which was probably VHS tapes um, in the late 90s, early 2000s and then I think it's been on TV and it gets rerun quite a lot um, but you don't normally get all of the episodes and the BBC has decided to put them on iPlayer which is why we watched it again Yes, indeed. And do you enjoy it? Did you like it? Yeah, it's it's, it's good. It's good. Um, I mean, it's your classic costume drama, really, isn't it? I mean, it's it's it lends itself really well to a, quite a long six episodes there. It's almost a definitive costume drama. I would say I would it is say. actually. Yeah. yeah, came out about the same time as Sense and Sensibility came out as the the film, didn't it? The Ang uh, Lee one, film. Yeah, the one with um, Emma Thompson and uh, Kate, Kate Winslet. So there must have been a revival of costume drama in the UK or maybe in Hollywood as well in the mid to late 90s. Well, I, well, I certainly think that Pride and Prejudice was, was an iconic, very iconic costume drama of the 90s in the same way that, you know, Downton Abbey is in the last 10 years and Middlemarch was in the 70s or whatever it was. Mm. I don't think that Sense and Sensibility was anywhere near as popular as Pride and Prejudice was, which is the difference between, I suppose, what you can do on film and what you can do on TV, because the Andrew Davis written adaptation of Jane Austen's novel is six episodes long, and each of those episodes is an hour in duration, whereas your average film is obviously around two hours. And Sense and Sensibility uh, garnered recognition because... Um, it was a really good adaptation and was uh, awarded Oscars, including um, Best Screenwriter for Emma Thompson, if I remember rightly, because I think she's won Oscars for acting and for screenwriting, because she did the adaptation for Ang Lee. That's quite easy to do, isn't it? Well, adapt to Jane Austen? I, I don't know. It's certainly something that is coming up. Part of the reason why I thought it was good to talk about this at this time uh, was because there are so many adaptations coming out. Um, so in 2018, in the British TV autumn schedule, there's going to be a new adaptation of Vanity Fair, uh, a adaptation of Les Mis, 
the book, not the musical, and a adaptation of War of the Worlds, um, which is set when the original radio play was. So it seems to me that there is definitely no lacking in interest from audiences, or certainly TV production companies think so, in taking the intellectual property in these famous books and remaking and remaking. Um, and the fact that the majority out of copyright, I'm sure, has nothing to do with it as well. But um, um, Yeah, I'm sure it does help. But it, it, mostly, primarily, it's something that people still want. And if you look at Pride yeah. and Prejudice, it was made, it was published in 1813. So it was made more than 200 years ago. Jane Austen's most famous work, even though we you know, we know Sense and Sensibility and Persuasion. She's had a few other adaptations. In fact, there was um, a really good adaptation of Lady Susan called Love and Friendship, um, which I think I think it has more than one name, with uh, Kate Beckinsale, mm-hmm. yeah, a year or so ago, which I really loved. So there's, there's something perennial about Jane Austen's work, which is actually crazy when you think about the world in which her novels operate. It's mostly middle to upper class rich families. There's no invention of um, airplanes or any kind of world travel. But I, I don't know, were there trains? There were trains. Uh, beginnings of trains, yeah. yeah. Uh, there weren't cars. So basically people could only really get around to the places they were willing to travel to in stagecoaches or what have you. So it's mostly these small almost soap opera type stories based on real life and based very much on the the setup of the family and the entailment of all assets on a male heir mm. being a woman in Jane Austen's time was actually horrific in terms of being able to make your own decisions in life. And yet we are still craving this kind of content in film and TV, which you could say is something which isn't really helping the feminist cause. Well, I think, well, first of all, I would say good literature is good literature and it doesn't really matter when it was written and there's a reason why you keep it well we keep adapting Jane Austen novels but we also do it with Charles Dickens novels and they they, don't, they are basically timeless it's the reason why we still act out Shakespeare plays I mean I wouldn't say any of these things are, are necessarily at their heart feminist piece of works in my I, opinion I would say though that Jane Austen is particularly focused on a set of circumstances which doesn't benefit women like yes Dickens yes. is about class and poverty and how that affects everybody and I would say that he has characters he has very strident female and male characters and everything is a little bit further along isn't it because you're talking 100 years later and so therefore there's a little bit of the difference in the evenness um of how let's say money's spread out like you have a lot of dickensian novels where it's not really about the gender it's just about the particular story um and what was the other well shakespeare Shakespeare. now shakespeare well some of what shakespeare does he you know if you look at romeo and juliet that's basically down the line Mm. and it's about heterosexual love it's not really about anything being worse for juliet than i think it is for romeo Mm. and also shakespeare works within um, like sometimes like a magical realm. So if you look at something like, um, uh, what's it called? Midsummer Night's Dream, where again, you have an almost 50 50 cast, I think, in terms of what's happening. You have Titania and Oberon at some point, and then you have. I don't remember these names. Yeah, then you have four, you have the four main characters, two guys, two girls. Anyway. Um, I think that Jane Austen lives in a slightly different realm, which is that a lot of female watchers of these TV adaptations are perfectly fine to see themselves in this world Mm. and would be perfectly happy to have some of those choices taken away from them because it kind of makes for a simpler story i certainly enjoy it and even when i re-watched it this time around even though i saw more things that irked me than i think 20 years ago i still enjoyed the story and still well that's what thought saying, it was wonderful well, that's what we're saying isn't it it's, it's, I, I, there's a i mean 
there's a, it's not the first time that Pride and Prejudice has been adapted and it certainly won't be the last one. Probably make another adaptation in 200 years time and keep making them every, periodically every 10, 15 years anyway. There was about 10 years ago, I think, was the Joe Wright directed yeah. film with Keira um, Knight. They are basically timeless. So that, that's why they're classics. Um, the, the fact that um, the subject matter has, I don't know, just, uh, not all the world in which that the, the the novel was written no longer exists, and the subject matter may not be quite as relevant as it was, is is still. It doesn't change the fact that it's an interesting story. But but should it? Do you think that Pride and Prejudice is now being viewed through the prism of this is a nice story that's set two hundred years ago, and therefore it doesn't really have any bearing on modern life, but yet you can still enjoy it in the way yeah. that you might enjoy a fairy yes, tale. You can. Yeah. Um, there are still things in there which are relevant, don't get me wrong. Um, but as, as I think they always are with, with these stories, I think they are with Dickens books as well. Um, but probably, probably not, uh, if, if, I don't know whether, whether Jane Austen was trying to make a social point to that, she probably was. Yeah. Um, it's, it's probably slightly lost on modern audiences because that world doesn't exist anymore. So they're not necessarily, it's not necessarily, saying anything detrimental to the feminist cause because we're supposed to look at it and and like laugh that that's how things were well well do we i I don't know i don't know um let's talk about the plot so for anyone who doesn't know it mr and mrs bennett are moderately wealthy for the time but are probably very wealthy for today because they have big houses and servants have five daughters uh, who are all coming of age although they're pretty young it, it transpires that they're like 14 to 22 I think um, is the range of age and uh, Mrs Bennett is particularly worried that unless her daughters marry when she and her husband dies because of the rules on entailment of property and assets they go to the nearest male heir and not to their biological daughters and the nearest heir is a nephew uh cousin of the bennett daughters and he's a vicar and, um, as transpires, is not really a very suitable candidate for any of them to marry. It was also okay for cousins to marry, it seems. I don't, know, I don't think that's really <laughs> okay today. Um, meanwhile, um, two very, very wealthy men move into the area. Um, uh, Mr. Darcy and... The Bingley. And they are unmarried. And so, therefore, Mrs. Bennett does her best to meddle in bringing her daughters into the paths of these rich men in order that they might fall in love and get married and therefore have lots of money keep the rest of the family uh, together and then it's a comedy of errors elizabeth bennett and mr darcy meet but don't hit it up because she's prejudiced against him because he's a rich man and uh you know thinks he's a snob and he's too proud uh to associate with people who are he considers less than him so she's right he is uh, a bit of a snob and it's very much about social manners social discourse how the class system was so important in english society and it also talks about scandal and what is and isn't the dumb thing Mm. Wickham is not to marry Mary King after all. She's been taken away by her uncle to Liverpool and Wickham is safe. Perhaps we should say Mary King is safe. But was there a very strong attraction between them, do you think? Not on his side, I'm sure. I shouldn't think he cared three straws about her. Who could about such a nasty, freckled little thing? Don't look at me like that, Lizzie. I know you think as ill of her as I do. Pass the celery, Kitty. Aren't you glad we came to meet you? We should be such a merry party on the journey home. To be honest with you, many of those points, especially in regard to scandal, how they only really started to disappear or dissipate, I should say, what, 
30, 40, year, 40 years ago, should we call it, roughly? Yeah, which is, a, which is really worrying. 1918, maybe, sometime around there. Yeah. Certainly, if you got divorced in the 1960s, it was a bit of a social faux pas. Mm, even in the 1960s. Yeah. Let's look at these issues then. Okay, the first thing, the entailment. So that's something that no longer happens. Now people can um, leave their property and assets to anyone they want. Oh, although, subtext to this, when did they change the line of succession to the throne? Only very recently. Only very, very just before, recently. Yeah, just yeah. before Princess Charlotte was born. So uh, if we're talking talking about uh, in the UK royal mm. family uh, which and she's probably about three now so there you go three four years ago mm. um, so yeah so some of these things that we're laughing at now and think are antiquated mm. are still very much hidden within the laws of the land or um, yeah yeah uh, you, you can you can definitely you you you, you if you if you're a uh, if you are a parent and you have five daughters and you have a house and you have some savings or something like that, when you die, um, you know, even if you don't have a will, that will go to your next yeah. of kin. And if you and if you're, you know, your wife and the husband dies first, then the wife it will go to the daughters. So that's definitely not something um, in play now. So the good news is it's a less misogynistic world in that sense however we still live in a world where men have the majority of the money and make the majority of the money and still have the decision making rights on where it can go yeah um but well okay so part part of the issue as well is 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 it sort of hinging around this as well in the in, in the world of pride and prejudice i'm not as, as a as a woman, I'm not quite sure what jobs were really available to you, if, if any at all, especially a, a, a woman of, of certain class anyway. You weren't supposed to work. That was the um, irony. Or you could be a governess. A te- I bet you could be a teacher. Not even a teacher, I don't think, because I think even that was frowned upon. I think governess, i.e. like a private tutor to someone's children. But really, your purpose in society was to get married and continue your family life. Yeah. It seems, because there are a few jokes in this Pride and Prejudice about um, the Bennett, one of the Bennett's uh, uncles being a solicitor yeah. and uh, living in Cheapside and uh, how that was frowned upon by the landed gentry who are the sisters of Mr yeah. Bingley. And I think now if you lived in Cheapside and you were a solicitor, you you might be a multi-millionaire. So things have changed in that sense. Well, yeah, but that's that's just a question of, of location as much as anything else. If you lived in, I don't know, some crappy part of London. Um... No, I don't think so. I think professional, what, I think now things like being a solicitor are seen as a high-level profession. Whereas to them, any job meant you were of lower status. Because those who had their um, own money just spent their own money. Well, I suppose so, yeah. I, I couldn't yeah, think of yeah. anything. But there are also a few other jobs that the army is quite a big deal in Pride and Prejudice. So there are always officers from the regiment coming around, yeah. which in their red red dress uniform excite the ladies. But also that's seen as a... Well, depending on where you are in the army, that's mm. seen as... Um, an okay profession there's definitely uh, people are sirs or lords if they're higher up commanding yeah. a regiment uh, and um, there's talk of someone who's a stable master again it's still probably frowned upon but it is a, it, it is a job that yeah. people can have yeah. so this is very much six hours worth of content about people who don't really have to work and so therefore in order to wring drama and comedy out of this, it can only really focus on their relationships or scandal or some kind of drama. Yeah, I suppose. Um, well, relationships are a funny one anyway, because I, I, and again, there was a very, there was a obviously an extremely narrow view of all this and that you got married and, and then you had children and, and, that, and that was that. Um, you weren't allowed to have sex before marriage, which is yeah. something that comes up in the plot. Well, okay. Um, I think that's true of, of certain true of the women. I wonder about the men. I'm not sure, quite sure how. I, I still think it would have been frowned upon. 
I don't think it would have been nowhere near as much as it would be for a, for a woman. A woman of a certain class. Yeah. Because let's look at the um, maths on that. If men can have sex before marriage and women can't, I don't understand how that works. It means men are having affairs with married women, well, or, I, they're, or they're having sex with fallen women, yeah, or women I, I who are not. Think they're frequenting brothels, is what they're yes. really doing. I, I, I yeah. don't doubt, but I mean, yeah, it's. It, I, well, I think my point about all that is that I don't think men were as exposed to scandal in that respect as women were. It, no. it probably still was a scandal, don't get me wrong, but um, probably not as much. No, there was a double standard in place. It was hard for a woman to get a job because that wasn't seen as something she could do and therefore she couldn't earn her own money and make her own decisions. Um, she wasn't allowed to be seen to be behaving in an unbecoming way, which might mean by being flirty. Whatever uh, that means. Yeah. Yes. Well, there are um, two sisters. Uh, the main characters, obviously, are Elizabeth and Jane, the two elder sisters. And then they have three younger sisters, Mary, Kitty and Lydia. And Kitty and Lydia are very impressed when any new men come into their social circle. And they run around, they dance, they want music played. And they generally, because they are supposed to be 14 and 15, they generally act like children, act like teenage girls. And throughout Pride and Prejudice, that is frowned upon by everybody. One of the things I noticed, which I didn't see the first time round for viewing this is how scathing everybody is towards Kitty and Lydia's behaviour. Yeah. Where nowadays I think that you would look at teenage girls being teenage girls and saying silly things um, and, you know, getting drunk and being silly and flirting. And I don't think anyone would ostracise someone from society. Well, there's probably an age disjoint there. Um, I think at the age of 15 in... Uh, in the early 19th century, well, you probably were, were you old enough to get married? Probably were old enough to get married, I would have yes. thought, and bear children. No, yeah. um, you probably would expect to have been grown up. Certainly men were officers in, officers in the army at that age. Um, but that's, there's a difference here between grown up and what's considered appropriate behaviour. I think that what you're saying is, yeah, that they weren't necessarily acting like children but I think the point I'm trying to make is that Elizabeth Bennett acts as um, the audience point of view we are supposed to be on her side all the way through and we see a lot of events from her perspective and yet she's a really judgmental character when it comes to people's behaviour which is different to her own that's probably because Elizabeth is the most enlightened character and is the most like the modern woman or modern person yeah but she's very disparaging of Kitty and Lydia and of her parents and of other people. And um, at the time of first watching, I think you just take that for what it is. But now I think society has changed even in 20 years. So even though we're talking about the customs of 200 years ago, I still think in 1995, we thought it was okay to make young teenage girls feel bad about themselves if they yeah. behave in a way other than what was considered ladylike. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, since 1995, so you'd saying if we were doing this now, it would change? I think, that, I think that perhaps Elizabeth wouldn't be portrayed so scathingly towards her sisters. And I do think that Kira Knightley's Elizabeth in the film, which is slightly later, uh, I don't remember her being quite so... Uh, against them. Um, What's the book say about this? I have to confess to not having actually read Pride and Prejudice. What does the book... Is it particularly scathing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Jane Austen, very much. I've read a few of her books. She very much writes um, with the air of comedy. She's taking the piss out of everything. But she also definitely writes in a way where... Moral behaviour is seen as best, which you can probably see in some of her other works, like Mansfield Park, where um, the whole point of that book is the person who acts 
nicely and keeps quiet all the way through the book is the person who's rewarded in yeah. the end. Yeah. There is definitely something about society in the 1800s where women were not allowed to make fuss. Well, it's, re- it's reservedness, isn't, isn't it? That's what's prized yeah. there. It, but, but in women, it, it, there, is, there is so much of a gap between what a man can do and what a woman can yeah, do. Yeah, I've no doubt about that. In Pride and Prejudice, the cousin, Mr. Collins comes over to see if he wants to marry any of the Bennett daughters, which, again, as we said earlier, is just weird in itself. But he is a very tactless and annoying character. Hilariously so in Pride and Prejudice, the TV adaptation. Yeah. But actually... Again, he's a character where nobody apprehends him or brings him up for his behaviour, which is to constantly well, no, talk no, about... no woman brings him up for his behaviour. I don't think any man does. Um, a man probably could. But it doesn't happen. No. And that could be because it was written by Jane Austen, or it could be because people didn't say that to men. Yeah. Definitely. There, there aren't a huge number of male characters. That's one of the... the reasons probably why um, Pride and Prejudice is so successful is that it definitely is from a woman's perspective and it is around 50% of the TV audience who are women and has been since time immemorial. So um, you have Mr. Darcy, Mr. Bingley, Mr. Bennett and Mr. Collins, I'd say are probably, and then a couple of other of the officers and Mr. Darcy's friend Fitzwilliam but basically there's only four main characters who drive the plot forward and they all fulfill certain roles but I would say that most of them except for Mr Darcy are not central to the plot yeah it is very much about the sisters and the mother and father yeah the mother um and their journey from their perspective yeah okay and then, and then what? <laughs> well, I think that that's, that's why I think Pride and Prejudice keeps getting remade, because how many stories do we have where the story is focused on the women? Well, how many stories do we have from the early 19th century that's focused on that? Probably, oh, she might be the only one, actually. Yeah. Um, so it might be that it keeps getting remade because there are so few. Well, Sense and Sensibility, there are so few that aren't written by Jane and Austen. It's also at its heart, though. You've got to remember, at its heart, it's still a love story. I mean, at the end of the day, it is it is a, a straightforward love story between two people who are maybe not quite suited for each other or can't quite get it together or whatever it happens to be, and then eventually make it work or fall in love or change their minds or whatever it happens to be. Would you say that Jane Austen invented the rom-com? Is it how funny is it though? Really, I think it's quite funny. It's got moments. I, I have you to don't say. think it's a comedy because I think it is written. The Andrew Davis adaptation is very much written like a comedy. I think I think there's bits of it that are comical, but I, I, at its heart, no. You think it's still a romance? Yeah. See, I don't think so. I think it puts the comedy on equal par hmm. with the romance because I think that when Davis was writing this, he was thinking, I'm putting this on Sunday nights at 9pm or whatever he did. This is a big BBC deal with a huge budget and this has to appeal to a male and a female audience. And he would probably say, and we may well agree with him, that, uh, and this is a stereotype, that more women want to watch romance, more men want to watch comedy. So if you combine the two, you create something that will keep people's interest for six weeks. how big are the... Yeah, but did, but did it have a massive male audience? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't know either, but I, I would speculate... It had a greater female audience. Probably, probably. <laughs> I, I think costume dramas generally do, and as a matter of... course. I mean, I, it's, an odd, it's an oddity, really, because if you look at, I, I, you know, we talked about, you know, Dickensian adaptations. Yeah. They're not particularly female-oriented at all, so why... I don't know. I think they're story oriented. Yeah. I don't think that's a bleak house has women in it. Like Oliver Twist has some women in it. Um, name me some other, a uh, little Dorrit. Dorrit is the, the title character. I think he wrote so many different things. And I think that we need to be careful not to be talking about mm. Charles Dickens mm. because this isn't about Charles Dickens. This is about Jane Austen. And this is about the adaptation 
of something and how it affects women. I think that we shouldn't be dragged into comparing it to other things. Mm -hmm. We should look at it in isolation, which leads me to the passing of the Bechdel test. Now, off the top of my head, I'm not entirely sure that it does. I'm sure it must do because you will have Jane Bennett and Elizabeth Bennett despairing over their mother. And therefore, you have two female characters talking about something which isn't a man. And so it's a pass. However, going back to your point that it's a love story between a man and a woman, there is an awful lot of talk between women about men. Mm. Whether it's, oh, I've forgotten... um, the one who runs away with Lydia as well. Wickham, he's another male character. So most of the characters talk about Wickham or Darcy or Bingley or Mr. Bennett or one of the uncles because the men can affect, or Mr. Collins, when the, the men can affect change. Yeah. There's only so much power that the women can use to affect change and that's probably why elizabeth bennett stands out so much because she is proposed to which the whole setting of the entirety of pride and prejudice is supposed to be leading us as the viewer to think we want her to be proposed to and get her happily ever after and she refuses mr darcy Um, and that's where perhaps her pride comes in the clues in the name yeah but but i do think that um there's only so much change that the female characters can affect. So that's sometimes where the comedy or the drama unfolds is them getting round the fact that women don't have that much power. You have Dar- uh, Bingley's sisters who stop Jane and Bingley from seeing each other because that's the one thing they can do. They can lie to their brother or they can intercept letters. Yeah. You have Mrs. Bennet who is, you know, in some ways the most ineffectual and ineffective character and yet she's trying everything possible to make sure that her daughters see these rich men and can interact with them but she can't go and call on them because she's not allowed to because yeah. that's not in the day she, she is comical by the way what do you think about Mrs Bennet 20 <coughs> years later well she she is a comedy character I, I, again I don't know whether she was written like that or not she was maybe not to that extent um, but in my opinion she was um, it is just Pure annoyance, pure melodrama, you know, probably actually hurting her daughter's chances of getting married more than, more than helping. Why? Um, just, it's the overbearingness, isn't it? Uh, just, it just, it just gets, gets up your nose and it, get, it gets up the characters' noses as well. So you weren't a fan? No. Well, I mean, it's a comedy character. I mean, do I, do I think she's a well-written comedy character? Yes, I do. Um, do I think in the context of the story, she's meant to be taken seriously? I'm not sure she is, no. And has your opinion changed in 20 years? No. 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 So, this mm. is where I would like to give what I call the defence of Mrs. Bennett. Okay. Because I felt exactly the same way as you, and 20 years ago, I thought she was horrible and annoying and getting in the way of her daughter's happiness and embarrassing. She was she was very much like the embarrassing mother-in-law stereotype character or potential yeah. mother-in-law. Watching it this time, I paid particular attention to her. And I think we need to look at Mrs. Bennett from another perspective. One, she is absolutely terrified that her children are going to be turned out of their house and home okay. when her and her husband die. Yeah, yeah. So she is trying to do everything possible to make sure that doesn't happen. It's not Mrs. Bennett's fault that she can't decide what to do with her own estate and then of course there's a very funny scene where mr bennett says well you never know i might outlive you i actually think the relationship as an aside between mrs bennett and mr bennett again i thought mr bennett was adorable 20 years ago really lovely loves his daughter particularly loves his his second eldest daughter elizabeth but actually he's really quite horrible to his wife now that i'm looking at this 20 years (laughs) later i'm not saying she's not annoying because she is but i don't think you'd portray mr bennett like that nowadays and in the joe wright film adaptation their their love is much i think much more 
open and obvious to see. You can see what they see in each other. Whereas in, yeah. in this Andrew Davis adaptation, you cannot see why they're together. They both really don't like... Well, no, I think she likes him. He doesn't like her. So that's one. So that's that's one thing is that she's trying really hard um, to help her daughters in yeah. any way she can. Two, I don't think she's treated very fairly by her husband. <laughs> Three, most importantly, what she does actually works. Like, not the embarrassing things, but she does put her daughters in the in the way of the rich men, and she does make sure that they see them and highlights them, and she also is very proud of her children most of the time and highlights it to people. She's like a showbiz, like, <laughs> my manager now, and that's what she would be. She'd be like... Um, uh, Chris Jennings, whatever name, Chris Jenner from the Kardashians now, where she's just pushing, pushing, pushing her daughters yeah. forward, and she gets results. <laughs> so I say, are we looking at her in a harsh manner because she is created in a misogynistic way to be a figure of fun? I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I, I just think she's annoying. <laughs> I'm just have, saying. Have I convinced you? No, I still think she's try. annoying. Okay. But like, well, like, well, we will agree to disagree. So one of the things I definitely. I mean, I think, I think if she succeeds, it's in spite of herself. Um, Do you not think though that a character can can be annoying and can still be unfairly treated on screen? Um, I'm not. It's it's an. If we're talking like the relationship between Mr. and Mrs. Bennett. Okay, is he entirely fair to her? But is she entirely fair to him? No, I mean it's an even, it's an even keel. Oh, I um, don't know. He like he winds her up constantly. Well, like he, I think she's I, got these nerves. I think I'm, I'm, she's I'm, got this nervous I'm certainly led to think. I'm led, led to wonder why on earth they're married. I have to be honest. Yes. And I think, again, that's in the Andrew Davis adaptation. I think it, it makes more sense for them to be together. I think they're portrayed more lovingly in the book. This is the thing about when you take these things and put them on screen, you have to kind of exacerbate things, don't you, to yeah. kind of get to the dramatic or the comedic um, uh, joy. So I, I definitely think that I think she's an unfairly maligned Mm. character. Well, I feel very sorry for poor Mr. Wickham and so becoming in his regimentals. I remember the time when I liked a red coat myself well enough. And I do still in my heart. So let's uh, uh, let's move on then. What do you think of Mr. Darcy as a character? Um... I like him. He's nice. Right, why? What he seems to have is, is morals, or at least it seems to be in the right place, or at least they are in general in the right place, I would say. Um, he's hung up on society, but then everyone was, you know. I, I, I don't think you can blame people for not rebelling against a society but, like that. But, but Bingley, Mr Bingley isn't like it in the way that Mr Darcy is. Uh, no, and Darcy just does, but Darcy does protect him from from what he perceives to be a social mistake which okay but is he right to do that well i say no i, I don't know i mean like I, I i think darcy's more acutely aware of the dangers of it and and again you can't blame someone for reacting to the society that they're in if darcy thinks it's dangerous or it could be you know uh ruinous for bingley to man to marry someone like that then he has to be be honest with him and say as a friend i'm recommending against you doing this but do you think then that it's it's more important that you don't have a ruinous reputation than you don't get than being with the person you love. Um, Who made these rules about what but, is? But the but the point acceptable. but the point of the book is not is not necessarily to. I mean, it does challenge those rules, but it doesn't really challenge the rules because they all succeed happiness within the confines of those rules. Only because Mr. Darcy admits he's wrong. Um, At the end, he said, I was wrong to keep you apart from Jane. So do you think he's actually saying, actually, Jane's not that bad? Yeah, so I he's think not he, actually well, saying... Well, I think what he's really saying is Jane's not that bad. Oh, and by the way, I quite like Elizabeth as well. So uh, actually, he's just doing everything um, for his own but, me. But, I, but <laughs> I, 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 I would still contend that he, he, he's not necessarily acting in bad faith. 
it's just that his priorities are different, that's all. But should he be in charge of Mr Bingley's priorities? Well, not necessarily, no. 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 I, I, but, but he's not necessarily... It's not true that he is. It's just that Bingley gets convinced by him, that's all. I think that part of the success, the reason why people like Pride and Prejudice so much, is because you do have this haughty, proud character who admits that they're wrong and changes their mind and makes up for them. Mm. bad faults at the end yeah even though you're now saying that maybe um he what he um he was doing it only for himself ultimately mr darcy this romantic hero that we still carry through to today is actually just doing things for him um is he, or is he doing it partially for Bingley as well? I, 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 I don't, I don't think he gives a crap about the Bennets, but I think he does give a crap about his friend. Okay, that's all. Now, I think when when it, the way that comes across, it comes across as insincere, or that he's damaging his friend's happiness, or. or Mainly because you're seeing it through the eyes of the Bennets as well. Yeah. Um, but he is a really good personification of the patriarchy, isn't he? Uh, yeah. He's got all the money. Yeah. He has all the power. He gets to make the decisions yeah. about his and other people's happiness. Well, yeah. yeah. And what's determined as a happy ending is when he gets what he wants, but it also happens to be what the heroine wants. Well, yeah, yeah. That's true. Because flipping that over to Elizabeth Bennet, who is very much regarded as the heroine of Pride and Prejudice and a kind of a, almost a modern heroine, even though it was she was made 200 years ago, in the Davis adaptation, I think that she's incredibly brave. One, one of the best parts about Elizabeth is that when she's speaking to Lady Catherine de Bourgh, which is the patroness of... Um, Mr. Collins and also the aunt, I think, of Mr. Darcy and a very, very rich woman who is the only, well, one of the few women who really has any kind of power in that society. Elizabeth dares to speak to her in a way which ordinarily would have seen her ostracised. But because she had friends in high places, it all works out okay. Yeah. And even Catherine de Bourgh does not get what she wants, which is for Darcy to marry her daughter. Your alliance would be a disgrace. Your name would never even be mentioned by any of us. Obstinate, headstrong girl, I'm ashamed of you. Tell me once and for all, are you engaged to him? I am not. And will you promise me never to enter into such an engagement? I will make no promise of the kind, and I must beg you not to importune me any further on the subject. Um, so I think that Jane Austen like made a created a brave character, and Andrew Davis realised this and definitely made her even braver and forthright mm. in her opinions. Yeah. You could put. <coughs> sorry, you could put Elizabeth Bennet in modern society. And she'd probably be okay. She'd probably want to have a job and have a living. However, again, on the rewatch, what I noticed is she gets very excited when she sees Pemberley. So she definitely likes Mr. Darcy for the fact that he has money because that's power and, you know, but you, you don't need to be with someone who has the biggest house in all of Derbyshire in order to be happy. Well, in that adaptation, I think they paint her as this sort of who, someone who, uh, I wouldn't say she doesn't care about money. Um, I, I think she cares about a certain standard, but isn't it doesn't care to be at the very very pinnacle of society. Well, at least this is the way that, that, but that Darcy, she, she's but made, to, is, made to look. Yeah, but Darcy is yeah, the pinnacle of society. Yeah. Um, and furthermore, you, you get the impression that she wouldn't actually like it up there. You know, that she might scale those heights and then hate the view when she got there. But there was a adaptation of a P.D. James novel, crime novel, called Death Comes to Pemberley, which was also made into a BBC adaptation. And that looks at life a few years on. So it's it's not Jane Austen, and um, it's a crime novel, so it's a different genre anyway. But that's quite interesting, because I do feel like Pride and Prejudice is something that in modern days if Jane Austen had a Twitter account she'd be hounded by people mm. left, right and centre to make a continuing story. People want to know what happens <laughs> because it does
does end with, oh, two couples get married. You don't need to know anymore because guess what? In this patriarchal society, you got married to a rich man. We don't need to know about your life afterwards. And I think that, you know, there's something to be said for a happy ending, but I'm not entirely sure whether that is a modern happy ending Mm. now. But anyway, back to my beration of Elizabeth Bennet, who I do really, really love. But yes, yes, she likes the idea of money and power and they do make a thing of it. Also, she really does not like it when her family embarrass her under her set of circumstances. And she makes it very, very clear. And I think she's rude. Not saying she's not right to feel about it, but she's a very haughty character herself. Um, and I think that the Davis adaptation prizes that and says it's a really good thing, but that's because it's such a juxtaposition between how everybody else behaves. Mm -hmm. But actually, again, if you remake it in modern society today, would people actually think she's a bitch? No. You don't think? No, I don't think so. I think... I don't know. I mean, like, I, I, the way, the way she's, she's, she's painted as someone who basically just falls in love with, with a guy that's, that's essentially, you know, a ton richer than her. But is that, all. is that all you see? Is that what you think her arc is? Cause I think women and men see Elizabeth Bennett in a different light. Um, I think, I, I think her arc is, um, she dislikes the haughtiness, but then ends up falling in love with a man who just happens to be like that. So do you think actually she, that's like that makes her look a bit silly um not necessarily well also it's not crystal clear as well with what she's really falling in love with i've often wondered this about pride and prejudice because i mean darcy starts doing nice things yes and then she falls in love with him later on and i always think to myself hmm how realistic is that i mean if if if, you know if, if somebody professed their love for you and you really weren't interested, and they started doing nice things. Is that going to change your mind? But is that because of the confines of that society, right? She didn't know him that well, because women and men are not allowed to spend that much time together alone before a man has to propose to a woman. In those days, you certainly got to know your partner more after the wedding night, not before. Yeah. So so in that sense, he kind of... he. How how much better could they have known each other? Because she didn't really know him. She had an idea of who he was, and some of it was true, but not all of it was true. Because with the Wickham story, you know, he's just keeping he's he's embarrassed of what happened, and so he keeps the story. Do you fall in love with people's actions, though, or their personality? This is why I never quite understand. Well, yeah, maybe that's what Pride and Prejudice says. But I think I think his actions show his personality. Is he is he is he a different person though at the end? To the beginning really but but you're suggesting that they have the freedom to fall in love and get married i'm not entirely sure that she was necessarily looking at a suitor she says to jane mm. in, in a scene i will only fall in love with someone i'm sorry i will only marry someone if i'm in love with them and she said and if i can't find anyone i love then i won't do this but she doesn't know how she's going to fall in love with anyone. She just has this rule, which is very brave for the time because she's not entirely sure that she won't be like out on her ass poor and then she might have to marry someone else. So yeah. she's, she's, she's a bit crazy, really. Whereas Jane, it's always seen as a nice arc because she falls in love with someone who also happens to be rich and she, you know, she's the real nice person. Jane, Jane sees niceness in everyone. You might say she's actually a bit dim and naive but you know i I still think in the rewatch she comes across as this lovely good character who doesn't do anything wrong and even accepts the tragedies that befall her Mm. but elizabeth i no, i think i think you can fall in love with someone if they do things because that's how you show their personality because you can't sit around and have long drawn out conversations And there's no need to smile like that, Miss Lizzie. Although Mr. Wickham has taken a fancy to you, I'm sure you've done nothing to deserve it. After your dealings with Mr. Collins. Well, it is all in vain. It will all come to nothing. Oh, the poor young man. If only he had five or six thousand a year, I would be happy to see him married to any of the girls. But nothing turns out the way it should. It is very stunted, though. Maybe that's where it does become a TV or a book 
adaptation and not real life, even for those times. Yeah, I think that's possibly um, where the TV element of things start that isn't quite as suited. I mean, in the, in the, in the span of a two-hour film... You, you really, you really got to just tell a love story. There's a few bits and pieces going on, but I, th- I think the flow of it and the pace of it is such that, that it's, it's, it's easier for an audience to get on board with it. Over six hours, there can be entire chunks, entire episodes, even where, where Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy don't actually meet. Um, well, that's not true because there were six hours and we watched them. And they're in every episode. But, but, but do they do they meet in every episode? Do they what do you talk mean by in, meet? Do they talk in? Every oh, do they talk in every episode? I think so. But I know what you're saying. You 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 can develop lots of other stories. And I have to say, I like the Joe Wright adaptation. I think the film's really good. But if I had to choose, I prefer the six hours. Yeah, I do. Because well. I'm not just interested in the love story. That's what makes you feel all gooey inside at the end. But I'm really interested in the societal structures and i Mm. think that that only comes out when you've got a tv adaptation and you've got hours in order to do this well true yes it does yeah do you have a favorite character or favorite part or worst or worst parts my favorite (laughs) mr darcy it's also the worst worst character (laughs) my favorite character what do you think of mr whitton doesn't stand any missing does he right so you like that (laughs) I think he's probably the person most like me. Right. Well, moving on from that. Who's your favourite female character? This Uh, is a female podcast. um, Okay. Did I... I suppose the mother's still quite amusing. Ah. amusing. She's annoying, but she's still funny. And she's interesting to watch. Yeah, I'll go with that. I did that. Okay. I imagine a lot of that family are annoying and make stupid decisions. Well, another thing I noticed in the rewatch is Mary. So she's this pious, religious, Bible-reading character who doesn't seem to care about men or anything. And she's such a caricature. It's ridiculous. that She's like, you know, plays these dower tunes on the piano and, you know, says a woman must be this. If anything, she's the personification of religion and that and the religious hold on people because you have her and you have mr collins and he's a vicar priest or whatever his job title is uh curate i don't know um uh and so there is kind of there's a suggestion of a religious aspect but i still feel like money trumps religion everybody goes to church in pride and prejudice this isn't i I don't think this is an era when i mean it's an era of it's probably more religious than it is now, yes, uh, but probably nowhere near as religious as it was in, say, the Middle Ages or, or the Renaissance or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, capitalism and making money and industrialization do trump everything in that world. No doubt about it. Hmm. And I think that it's there, the influence, but it's not as strong as you see in other TV shows or books or things like that, because I think the church... Um, perhaps doesn't have the hold it has in the UK even 200 years ago. No, it doesn't. Or than America, I was going to say. But actually, maybe all of these attitudes do come from the Bible. A woman must be proper. A woman can't do this. Yeah, I actually have no idea where or how it all sort of started. I think you can trace it. If you look at British history and European history, you can sort of trace it back through the Middle Ages and, and so on and so forth. Well, then you go uh, but, from... But exactly where it all started is anybody's guess. Then you come through to the times of the 1800s and you have Mr. Darcy and men are the ones that have property. Men have power. Men can give it on. Everybody goes to church. God says women should be this. God says that. So I think there is a you know the bible was likely written by men and kings were were, there were generally male monarchs and landed gentry were generally male and i think that's what filters down into men think it's okay to say how women can behave and that's something that we have in 2018 Mm. so we can all laugh and say oh pride and prejudice it was 200 years ago but worryingly a lot of the lessons and a lot of the ways that women are treated are not so different today. How different would you say? I mean, like if you had to, it doesn't feel quite as constrained as that though. It's not as constrained as that. I have a job. I can earn money. I can decide what to do with it. If my parents 
die, they could leave everything to me or they could leave it to my sister or my brother. So in terms of entailment, definitely there's not the same kind of incentive. However, in the UK, we still have marriage incentives in terms of tax breaks, which is the relationship between politics and the church. That's true. So that's still there. We're still having these courses going through court about whether um, um, two people can have a civil partnership and not a marriage, two heterosexual people. Um, I thought they could now. Well, there's been a case, but I think it might be in appeal again. I don't know if it's if that's definitely the law, because that is a big change. And that's, you know, numbers of, of people visiting churches, attending church uh, services, are dwindling in this country more than ever. You know, there's the jokes about churches turning into banks and mm. houses and all sorts of other things. And yet, we still have these antiquated religious-based laws that tell us that we need to have marriage and that it is a financial advantage to be married. So, yes, things have changed, but we don't have total freedom yet. But that marriage issue is not a... It's a male issue as much as a female issue, wouldn't you say? Uh, yes, men men get... You're right, men get the tax break as well. But it's incentivising marriage to both parties. I don't know if it incentivises civil partnerships. I presume it doesn't. I mean, I can, so I don't know if you're gay, if you get married, what the um, uh, tax break situation is. I'm going to find that out. But, yeah, um, I don't know what it is either. Um, but certainly it is saying heterosexual marriage is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's been saying that for a long, long time. I suppose that is one of the things you, that, that <laughs> is referenced in the book. But, um, I mean, I, I'm struggling a bit with it because I, 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 all right, I mean, do I think women are given, uh, are, are on an even keel with men in 2018? No, I think there's quite a few other areas where we could move forward. But, is it anything like the early 19th century? I don't think so either. I think it's, it's, it's probably, a, it's probably closer to equality than it is to the 19, early 19th century, I would say. I would hope so. Um, so do you think that there's merit in stories like this being remade? to teach us about the past because there's a fine line between making something for entertainment with the knowledge that this isn't how the world is today and serving something up and saying this is how people should be do you think we've come along far enough now that pride and prejudice can be seen as acute fable from the past because i'm not sure that we have well i mean a story, a book, or a story from the past is just that, um, and they have as much they have as much value as they ever have. And there's a reason why they've lasted as long as they have. And they tend because they tend to be very high quality. There's probably a lot of drivel written at the same time that we don't remember. Do so you think um, a story is a good story, and it doesn't um, matter yeah, about yeah. the social situation at the um, time? I think you've got to show it in, in its natural environment, uh, in its natural habitat. Otherwise, you're not really being true to the story. Now, you can adapt stories into modern day. You could adapt Pride and Prejudice or indeed any story. Well, it story has in, been. In, into, um, Bride, yeah. Bride and Prejudice, um, the Bollywood adaptation, which is hilarious and very modern. And I don't think it's a patch on this adaptation, but I still think it shows how you can um, transfer those issues to modern society. Yeah. <laughs> Please, your face looks like a baby's wet bottom. Kohli wants you to meet a plastic surgeon from Orange County. I can't just forget Balraj like that, Mama. Please don't make it any worse. I, I think all that, and that's, that's fine, but I also wouldn't lose sight of the original source material because you've, you've no reason to. I mean, it's still, a, it's still a high quality piece of art, really. But that you can find what funnier and funnier because it, it may, it's it may, moving. It, it may be less and less relevant. Um, as things tend to be, you know, when, when you go through history, but I would sit there and argue how, I mean, for all those, for all of us that you know, went to school and, and, um, were forced to read Shakespeare, um, we were all sat there and, and as, and as a joke was told and the teacher had to point out to us that that was a joke, I, I, I tend to sit there and think, well, if you're telling me that's the punchline, it clearly isn't that funny, but it may have been at the time. It might have been at the uh, time. Um, and I, and I, I think the further away from the, the source material in time you get, the, the less relevant it becomes. But it is still, they are still stories. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, it's, it's, 
whether it be film, music, or anything else, yeah, you, it should be preserved and, and remade and listened to and watched and everything else. Well, there's a lot of adaptations, TV adaptations at the moment, which are taking something with that either had a male writer or director or producer or a, or a prevalent male cast and then recast it either with... Um, greater numbers of females in front of the camera or a female director, editor, what have you. I think that with Pride and Prejudice, it's quite hard because it is an iconic thing which has so many female roles in it. So I'm not sure whether remaking it with male role, with a male Elizabeth Bennett, Eddie Bennett, Eddie and John Bennett, yeah, would would be... Mark Bennett and Elizabeth Darcy or something like that. Yeah, that would confuse me. Um... Well, okay, so there's a, there's a, I, I, I have a feeling, from what I've seen anyway, that that would never be t- tolerated, or at least I'm, I'm not quite, right, so if you watch enough costume dramas, what you begin to realise is that they, they generally are not as inventive and as creative from a cinematic perspective as, as, as they could be. Yeah, because um, they couldn't travel anywhere. They had to really be in these daily homes, these gardens. Well, yeah, but I'm just talking about pure cinema in terms of how you make it. Now, I'm not expecting the BBC adaptation to be, no. you know, off the scale good, but certainly, you know, um, film versions of it, there is there is opportunity there for people to take a bit of creative license. Not, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying... I don't ch- think Joe Wright uh, did with I, the I'm not saying change locations. the story or even the dialogue, but there is... And I think what happens is they, they never really do. I don't think Joe Wright did. I don't think Ang Lee did in Sense of Sensibility either. I, I think it's... They, they, get, they get scared. They get scared about offending 200 years of, of, of tradition in mm-hmm. regard to that particular book. And hence, they just film it as if they're filming a play. Yes. Um, and I think that's what will continue to happen. I can't see that changing, really. So do you think that if they made Pride and Prejudice on a grander scale that might add something well i think one argument is that the further away that you get the more the, the, the more scope there is to change it i mean again going back to shakespeare you, you can adapt shakespeare into into modern environments and it has been done several yeah, times um and, and it does seem to work but again but again it's almost like i think the the because we're 500 years plus now it's, it's becoming you know that that gap is quite large mm-hmm. people for young kids to truly identify with that you're gonna have to do something to sort of revamp that so i think that makes sense and i don't doubt in who knows in 100 years time they might make a pride and prejudice and it's set in a really cool youth hostel with uh, you know i don't, I don't know. think it'd be set in a youth hostel right, yeah. we could set it on mars mr darcy's, darcy's the rock star and you know elizabeth bennett's i don't know um something else I'm not sure. but should you still be doing it that way do we not want to set it in a in a situation where women have the power okay you could do it, it that way around yeah a, a teenage boy or a, not a teenage boy it would be older uh, yeah now. yeah they that would, would work too yeah that would work too and w- maybe that would show the ridiculousness of the patriarchal system well, if you're asking me do i you know do i Th- do I think that would work? Um, and would it be interesting? Would it be good to watch? I think yes. Do I think anyone will try it? No. At least not right now. They won't. I, I hope that one day someone's listening to this mm. and, you know, we're happy to help, uh, make, um, Pride and Prejudice boy version. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't. I just no. think people are scared of offending the Jane Austen fan club, really. Yeah. Oh, that's another good film. Jane Austen Fan Club. Mm. Probably haven't seen that. There you go. See, and that's just people reading the books. (laughs) So Jane Austen has spawned so many different pieces of media. You know, we also have Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Mm. It's, I think she's just the, like the chronicler of, if that's a word, of that time, that specific time. And it does seem to me that male and female Film watchers what want to watch things based on these rigid rules. I think there's something like exciting about creating a system of rules and then something happens which means you act outside of it so you have a crime someone dies or you have zombies appear or you have people realizing that they're reading a book and reenacting it in their real lives mm. I, I think that I still think that Pride and Prejudice, uh, the 1995 adaptation, the original book, the 2000s film, still have a place in our society because we're still close enough to it to 
see that that's how the world was and yet that is to some extent how the world still is and it did bring us characters like Mrs Bennet like Elizabeth Bennet like Lady Catherine de Bourgh like the sisters like Jane so there are so many good female characters that I suppose maybe it should be updated again but tweaking things ever so slightly again to make it less like patriarchy could it still just be a a romance could it still just be about people from different sides of the tracks or um, a guy and a girl or two girls maybe that you need to make a lesbian version of of it or a, a gay version um where it's just about because because pride and prejudice it's named after two emotional states and as I've named this podcast, we're still proud, we're still prejudiced as mm. human beings. Well, so true, therefore, true, yeah. it's a universal story. If we could just tweak the misogynistic parts of it, it still has something to teach us. I'd like to see it. I mean, I, I, before I pass any judgment on that, because you can't afford to lose the essence of what the original works was at the same time. So I'd like to just see what, what that came out like. Do you think that's the sense of threat, the stakes? The stakes are you've got to find someone to marry you, otherwise when your dad dies, you could get turfed out. Well, that's really house. what it's about. Yeah. So all you need to do is create, create a situation where that would be true. The historical one has been the male-female relationship, mm-hmm. so you, you, you've got to give me another one that's convincing, and, and I'll go with it. Uh, uh, post-apocalyptic Pride and Prejudice. Like zombie. Um, and... This guy's got all the resources, and yeah, there's zombies again. Yeah. Uh, animals. Zombies and humans, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, could Quentin Tarantino, we don't really want a male director, could Quentin Tarantino make Pride and Prejudice? Yeah. Uh, Everyone's if, got a gun. Look, if Mark Darcy, Darcy carries a gun and points it at people sideways, then yes, he yeah. probably could. Um, Maybe you exacerbate all of the qualities even further. Mrs. Bennett's like a drug kingpin. Uh, yeah? You could probably do all yeah. this. I'd like, yeah, give it a go. Give it a go, <laughs> man. See what happens. So we agree the 1995 TV adaptation of Pride and Prejudice is worth a watch. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Still 20 years later. The best one I've ever seen, really, I'd have to say. Um, Pride and Prejudice, I, mean, I think I've only ever seen two, to be fair. <laughs> it's the best one I've ever seen. <laughs> the best of two. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Mm. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for making your way through this long episode. The music in this episode is the theme from Pride and Prejudice, written by Carl Davis. Until next time, bye!